0: You know, I once uh, said that this was the worst thing in Star Trek, you know, show, movie, whatever. Um, I have since reevaluated that. I have since uh, placed it much less bad, since I've I have since believed there are much worse things. But most of my reevaluation has come from basically a differing perspective. Last year, early last year, so it's been a little over a year now, I actually rewatched all the Star Trek movies with my sister. Now, it was a rewatch for me. She hadn't watched them before. Like, she'd watched uh, 4 and, I think, bits and pieces of 7, and that's it. So she'd not watched any of these movies. So, when we were watching, when we got to 5, and it was time to watch 5, it was like, okay... Listen, and I just was, I started talking to her about some of the behind-the-scenes stuff, and she's like, wow, that sounds like a mess. And I was like, yeah, that, that, that sounds pretty accurate. And we went ahead and watched it, and bizarrely enough, I ended up enjoying the experience. For the first time ever, by the way. To rewind the clock a little bit, I watched this when it came out. I watched this as a kid, and I disliked it so much that I'd never watched it again. And so, you know, I mean, most of these movies I've watched or rewatched relatively frequently Uh, i think the second biggest gap in watching a movie would actually be with uh, motion picture but even that i had rewatched more recently than five i hadn't really watched five since it came out on vhs and i watched that once rented by the way not purchased and then i watched it last year pretty big gap the reason for that is because i disliked it so much even you know when i was that young it was just so bleh that i just i couldn't stand it when I rewatched it last year I enjoyed it but not because it was a good film which brings me to my question and my statement. Uh you that doesn't say lamentation up there. It's still admittedly a tightrope and it is it's almost a technically but this for me is a movie that is so bad it's good that there is an enjoyment to be derived from basically making light fun of it as it Makes absolutely no sense, and 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 basically is is terrible in many different ways. You know, which is just basically the definition of so bad it's good. But it's still a bad film. And that sort of brings me to my question and my and my statement. Like I said, if you out there genuinely like this film because you think it's a good film. Not because you think it could have been a good film, not because you enjoy it even though it's a bad film. I've heard of people who who are in both of those categories, including myself, as I just mentioned. But if you honestly think this is a good film, I'd love to hear from how and why. Because I've never heard that before, from all Star Trek fans ever. Now, I've heard lots of people defend this film, saying it should, shouldn't should be as bashed as it is, and should give be given more credits than it is, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera but it's worth noting that several people who worked on this film including Shatner himself had the feeling and and the fear that they had helped contribute to killing Star Trek. Now I'm going to talk about why that is in a little bit because the film by itself didn't wasn't going to do it, but bear with me, okay? Now, the next thing I want to point out is that I've often found that I tend to enjoy just about anything, especially movies more when I enjoy it with a with with a group uh, or even if that group is one other person. So I was curious if I was going to enjoy this movie as much on reviewing by myself, because I was in analysis mode, and the answer was no. I, I did not enjoy it as much, but I still did enjoy it, which was the thing that I was curious about. But it was still for the fact of making fun of it. it very much it, It's usually referred to as the Mystery Science Theater 3000 effect, a.k.a. <laughs> here's an incredibly terrible film, let's laugh at it the whole time, right? Again, so bad it's good. If that bothers you, this is the statement, if it bothers you hearing me uh, mock something or be critical of something, then you probably should close this video. I have very few good things to say about this film. Let's talk about William Shatner. And we're done. No, seriously, I actually had a whole speech about William Shatner prepared. And when I was doing research uh, on Shatner and on his works, and I, I came across several forums. Now I know, I know, forums are the cesspools of, of human society, blah, blah, blah. By the way, I have a forum, you should totally go there. Um... I saw some of the most rancid, vitriolic, thought-derived, and, 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 excuse me, thought-deprived nonsense that I've seen in in a long time on people who were either bashing William Shatner or, if you believe it, bashing James (laughs) Doohan. And I was just like, whoa, guys! And it occurred to me, that I don't feel like engendering that kind of discussion on my uh, channel. I I don't care for that. I mean, I could just go ahead and delete the comments, and I do delete comments like that whenever they happen, or Google catches them and they never get published. But what the hell, guys? So we're not actually going to talk about William Shatner. I'm going to point out one thing for historical curiosity. His book, Star Trek Memories, uh, was, was produced and came out basically after this movie was finished and in the following years. It, the book itself came out uh, four years later, so he had started doing work on it just uh, not too long after this movie came out. It is also worth noting Shatner himself didn't like this film. Now, he bl- paste, doesn't place a lot of that blame on himself... But I will give credit to the man that at least publicly he has taken ownership of a decent amount of the blame. Now, he thinks that if he had had a higher budget and whatnot, he would have been able to fix the situation. And he feels like he was hampered by the studio, and he was. And there were other mitigating factors we'll talk about as well. But at the very least, the man has said, I screwed up. And again, I'm worried that I killed Star Trek. Now, he didn't. But it was a close thing. I mentioned back in Star Trek 1 that I didn't want to talk about the mess that went into that movie. Well, Star Trek 5, wish it had it that good. You want to talk about a mess. Oh my god, now this is late 80s, okay? This movie came out in 89. This film, um, at least I think it came out in 89, it was, it was pretty recently, uh, relatively speaking. We have a lot more behind-the-scenes information on The Final Frontier, and a lot of it is a lot more conclusive, and... You, this this redefines the word mess they were on a severe time budget because of a writer's strike they had the teamster strike issue that went into things they had uh shatner basically having a lack of understanding of his character's position in star trek which i'll talk about a little bit there was in there was actually executive meddling which i'll talk about a little bit let's let's actually just go down the list Let's, let's let's go there okay so we have the writer's strike now Strikes happen, and whether you agree with them or not, it's something you kind of have to deal with in film. And whenever it happens, you basically have to rush things in order to push out a script. Or indeed, if you're Transformers 2, Revenge of the Fallen, just start filming without a script. We don't need a script. Um, The executive meddling was that Shatner wanted to do a film about deeper meaning. And the, the executive said, we want a light-hearted comedy flick, just like Star Trek IV was. And they forced him to do that. So the movie has a lot of bad comedy inserted in it everywhere. <sighs> There's no nice way to say this. It sucks that Shatner's vision was not able to be de- made. And this is the weird thing. I agree that there are a lot of mitigating circumstances when it comes to this movie. And there are. It was a mess. It's not all Shatner's fault. But one of the things that has to be noted is this kind of thing happens in film. Often, actually. Um, Executive meddling, uh, difficulties behind the scenes, not getting the right actors, which was an issue they had. Not getting the right directors, uh, or not directors, excuse me, uh, producers. Not getting the right writers. They got some, uh, what's his name, Lowry or something? Like that. David Lowry, that was it, uh, to do the screenplay. Who, by the way, is not a good writer. <laughs> I mean, they, just, they didn't get anyone that they wanted to. They couldn't even get il so they had to deal with uh, a, a crap visual effects. But if you've ever wondered why Star Trek V looks like garbage compared to, oh, I don't know, every other Star Trek film, it's because it is garbage. It was, I mean, the, the effects, visual effects. It was done by a completely new team uh, who had never done Star Trek before who were crap and who were lowballing underestimating contractors who produced crap. Some scenes in this movie have not actually been released. We've seen some behind-the-scenes things about them, but basically in most versions of the movie, you're not even going to see some of those effects because they were so bad that they were rejected for being introduced. It was just terrible. Terrible. So bad effects, wrong actors, wrong people behind the scenes, wrong writer, (laughs) Uh, the strike, as I already mentioned several times, strikes, really, plural, and then we get to the flawed premise. Now, I'm sorry, but Shatner's original prejudice is, I want to search for deeper meaning and the search for God. You know, I want to go take on God. Some of you probably... I, I know most of you are probably not around in 89. I don't mean that as an insult, but because I know a lot of my audience is somewhat younger. But... One of the things that, has al- that a lot of Trek fans, especially from the original series and, the, and the, uh, the, the early TNG eras, always have held true is that they don't like religion getting involved in their sci-fi, right? It, it's, kinda like, uh, it's, it's, it's kind of hard to explain, but basically the implication is that the two don't gel well unless you do it really well, and Star Trek has tried to mix the two, and it's almost universally failed. Gene Roddenberry himself went to Shatner and said, Don't do this story. I've tried to do this story. It failed. People didn't like it. Now, a lot of you have been around for Indiana Jones 4. And a lot of you probably had the same general opinion there. Even if you were not a fan of the franchise as a whole, you were aware of one of the biggest outcries was the fact that they were mixing science fiction in with the down-to-earth fantasy adventure style of the Indiana Jones which is actually leaning more towards religious if you're paying attention to the the original franchise. So again, the two just don't gel well. That's that's common knowledge. Now you can make them work and people have made them work, but the point is it's hard to do at a base point. You're starting out going uphill. It's a bad premise. It can be made to work, but it's still a bad premise. That brings me to my next problem. William Shatner does not did not have a full understanding of his position. Now I said I wasn't going to talk about the man, but I, I am going to give my opinion because, God damn it, I'm not going to hide on my own freaking show. Okay? If you want to bash me for my opinion, get off my channel. If you want to say that you think I'm wrong for my opinion because you disagree with that, feel free to comment. I will read it and, and maybe even respond. Sorry, reading that forum just really put me in a bad mood. Um, I actually have a decent amount of respect for William Shatner. And not just because he was Kirk and not just because he was Danny Crane. I have respect for the man because it takes a particular type of man to admit he's wrong and to try to do something to fix it. Shatner was an egomaniac. There is no denying this. There is so, so, so much evidence showing this, and he himself has admitted it. When he did the 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 works for that book, I, I remember seeing an interview with the man, and he he had this shocked look on his face, Shatner, because he had he was talking about the book, Star Trek Memories, and he was just, "Oh my God, I had no," he didn't realize he was so egomaniacal, he is so self-centered that he didn't realize how much the other cast members despised him for what he did. James Dewan refused to be interviewed for that novel. He flat refused. Now one of the interesting things is we all know that James Doohan and William Shatner had a bit of a feud going but none of us know why and we never will now and that's a damn shame not, not just because we won't know but because James Doohan from my understanding was a really awesome guy and it sucks that he's dead and I mourn just like I mourned with Nimoy just like I mourned with DeForest Kelly just like I've mourned with a few hundred or a thousand other individuals but the point is there was such vitriol towards Shatner and he saw that and it was like a slap in the face and he started turning himself around in public in his in his in his personal life in his presentation and the kind of roles he did stopped making it all about himself tried to make it more about the people around him tried to get along with people better by all accounts he actually started getting along with Leonard Nimoy in particular much much better after this turnaround and actually started trying to be more personable and less of a jackass he started doing another thing, too, uh, which is usually referred to nowadays as Adam Westing. In other words, he openly mocked himself and the things that had become characters of, caricatures of himself as a way to embrace it, and, and, and which, which tends that, that sort of open-hearted embracing of your own mockery tends to... I don't know, it's, it's hard to explain, but it's one of those things that tends to make you more beloved than you otherwise would be. Is he still egomaniacal? Probably, yeah. The man still does uh, have a bit of a ego. But he has also done a lot of things that most people aren't even aware of, which I'm not going to list here. His credits are huge if you look out. Even if you chop out Star Trek and chop out uh, Boston Legal, he has actually done a lot of stuff, okay? But all of that was after Star Trek V. And I mention this because... William Shatner, is well reported as when he went to the premiere of Star Trek V, his reaction was, oh my god, this is a terrible movie. And he knew that. And he admitted it. And he was in shock at how bad it was. It is my opinion that Shatner was delusional up until this slap in the face. And it is a shame that we nearly lost Star Trek to get the man to wake up. So don't think I'm defending the man. I'm just trying to be, you know more gray in my perspective on the circumstances. But he did get that shock after Star Trek V, which brings me to my point. William Shatner was so focused on how awesome Kirk was. Now, this is funny because Kirk is awesome. Kirk is awesome! I'm sorry! (laughs) It's true. He was awesome in the original series. He was awesome in the movies. He was even awesome in the motion picture. And he was flawed and wrong in the motion picture. And he was still presented as awesome. I talked about this. He was awesome in 2 and 3 and 4. Okay? We can acknowledge this. At least, I, I, I'm i sorry. <laughs> this is my opinion. I'm sure many people disagree with me on this. Feel free to disagree with me on this. Um, but it is my opinion that Kirk was awesome... But he was focused on his awesomeness so much. Think about it as a percentage thing, okay? This is 100%. It, you, you can't have more than 100% in this circumstance, right? This is not Donkey Kong Country, okay? 100%. How much of this is Kirk is, of course, debatable. But let's just say for the sake of argument, it's 30%. Like 30% of what makes Star Trek great is Kirk. I mean, that that's way too much. But just bear with me, okay? I'm just making up a number off the top of my head. This chunk over here is Kirk. And then we've got Spock and McCoy and all the other characters and blah, blah, blah. But it's 100%, so the only way to increase Kirk's level of interest is to detract from everyone else. Because you're stuck at 100%. So the only way to make him seem more awesome, to more focus the story on Kirk, is to push everyone else down. This, in my opinion, is the single biggest flaw of Star Trek V, and the character assassination therein. I mentioned this later in my notes, so forgive me for jumping ahead, but let me just point this out here. I hated this movie when I was a kid, but, well, teenager, I call call 20-year-old as a kid, what do you want from me? But I, I still think this is a bad movie now, and it's not just because of the effects, which are bad. And it's not just because of the script, which is bad. And it's not just because of the fact that it completely contradicts Star Trek lore literally non-stop, which is aggravating. I'm not even going to mention the obvious things. I'll much, I'll probably mention them ones I go through here. I mean, for God's sake, the, this, the Enterprise, in like six hours, goes from anywhere, <laughs> I mean, in, in, like Nimbus, wherever, to frickin' the center of the galaxy. Do you know how long of a trip that is? But okay, ignoring the fact that they completely just fling canon out the window, it's not a Star Trek film because of what it does to the characters, The only characters who arguably are in character at all are Spock sometimes and McCoy sometimes. Even Kirk himself is out of character. And that brings me to my point. I I just hinted it at a brief thing. Why is it I have found myself to enjoy this movie? It's not just because it's so bad it's good. It's because it's not a Star Trek movie. And once that flip, once that switch was flipped in my brain, it made a lot of things different. Let me explain what I mean by this. Just because a work is has a label on it does not make it part of that work and this is my belief my opinion but i've always felt that just because you'd label something oh, i don't know final fantasy it does not make it a final fantasy See, and if you want a literal example of this, see Final Fantasy Adventure or Final Fantasy Legends 1 through 3 for good examples of what I'm talking about. Just because you smack the label on it does not mean it is engendered of the concepts and themes and overall scope and style of what the work is. I have often said that Chrono Trigger is truly a Final Fantasy game, whereas Final Fantasy X-2 is not. Just to name two examples off the top of my head, regardless of labels... So when I say Star Trek 5 is not a Star Trek thing, I mean it. Just like I said, Into Darkness is not a Star Trek film. Because it isn't, in my opinion, in my perspective. Because for me, Star Trek, and I talked about this, for me, Star Trek has always been about characters. Character focused, character development. Bam, bam. That is what Star Trek means to me. This movie is the antithesis of that. Let's look at the characters. Let's just go down the list here. By the way, this is going to be a short video because I really have so little to say about this other than... Unless you want me to just start bashing everything individually. In which case, I'll go get the nitpicker's guide because... Let's look at Kirk. Okay, Kirk goes from being Kirk to suddenly being this super... like, Like a blend between Kirk and someone who has heard of Han Solo but hasn't actually seen how he acts and is trying to imitate him. He's trying to be... duck freaking dodgers for all intents and purposes the solo man the single incompetent individual in the universe except he's not actually the only competent one this is really funny if you really analyze the movie there are actually four competent people in the entire movie which brings me to my next character spock who goes from being spock to being vulcan spock who must always be the butt of the jokes and the straight man for the humor Except for one scene. I'll talk about that later when we get to there in my notes. And then so he, he, and then we've got McCoy, who goes from being McCoy to being Cantankerous Man, who constantly makes fun of everything <laughs> I'm just picturing his superhero outfit. He's got a cane. Um, you get my point. Most of the characters, and I'm going to go through a few more, but most of the characters basically come off as caricatures of themselves. Let's look at Sulu. Sulu is someone who has always... Always approached himself with a... Except when he was drunk. Um, <laughs> approached himself with a degree of poise and competency. He's someone who is... Uh, on the officer track, there's a reason why his sliding into command felt so natural. Um, he's also someone who has a great deal of loyalty about him. That was a huge point in Star Trek Three and in Star Trek IV. And yet here in five. With 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 like no hesitation at all, he he completely turns on everything and everyone he's ever had loyalty to, and by the way, he's also lost in the woods, and yeah, I don't even know what else to add. I think that's basically all that Sulu does in this film. He gets lost, he oogles the Klingon woman, and then he turns on his on his loyalty. So that's Sulu. Uh, Chekhov barely even gets that. Chekhov is lost. Um. A terrible liar, brunt of jokes again, and again oogling the Klingon woman, and that's kind of it. I mean, yes, he had this chance in the captain's chair, which is a shame, because I think actually Walter Canning did something with that. But otherwise, a veritable non-entity. What does Uhura do? She pawns over Scotty, which... What?! Uhura's sudden attraction to Scotty is shows up for this movie and then vanishes by the end of it because it's never been even hinted at before and never will again. And she does the fan dance, which I'll talk about later. And that's it for Uhura. And I'm really, am I missing anyone? Um, I mean, I can talk about the guest stars, but that, that's basically the main cast right there. No, there isn't, because there's one other person. I mentioned There's there's four competent people in the galaxy. This is hilarious because... And again, because of that Shatner Dewan thing, James Dewan, excuse me, Scotty, Montgomery Scotty, is the other competent person. Think about this for a moment. Of all the crew members, only two of them don't get brainwashed or mind controlled or whatever you want to call it by Cybok Kirk, duh, and Scotty. They're the only two who don't. While everyone else is running around trying to fulfill Cybox's plans, Scotty breaks them out of prison. Successfully, I might add. While, they, while everyone else immediately gets mind-controlled and suckered into the cult mentality, Scotty's the one who manages to think his way out of the situation by saying, maybe later when I'm more ready for it, you know. Of all the other people who are literally so glued to the screen that they miss the fact there's a Klingon bird of prey on their scanners, which shows up. The camera pans over to show us the scanner so we, the viewers, can see it. But everyone else is so incompetent that they completely miss that. While everyone else is being that stupid, Scotty is fixing the transporters by himself. It's weird because, like I said, there's four competent people in the world and the fourth one is freaking Scotty. Not that I mind that, it's just... Huh? 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 And then we've got the whole televangelist thing. Let's 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 talk about that. Let's talk about the fact that Shatner was inspired by seeing a televangelist on TV to make Cybok. <sighs> now, okay. Let's rewind a bit, because this is actually relevant to the framework question, okay? So you can understand the framework of this work, and how under... If they had gotten a good scriptwriter and if Shatner had been dialed back a bit, and maybe if the studio hadn't involved him... And those are the the only changes I would really make. uh, I think the Star Trek V could have actually been a good film. It's actually even possible it might have been a good, enjoyable film. I don't think it could have been a great film. The premise and the framework are too flawed, which is my point that I'm about to make. The framework of this is that Cyborg was was designed to be someone who does not mind control you. Now, I keep calling it mind control because that's how it's presented, in every way that makes sense. And yet the movie goes out of its way repeatedly to make it clear that it is not mind control. It leaves it just gray enough that you might think it's brainwashing. But Shatner himself was adamant that it was not mind control because the framework he wanted was Kirk stands alone and then is reunited with his family. The point was to do this with the story. A very basic framework, but one that could have worked if this was not in Star Trek. Which, hey, it's not a Star Trek film, so maybe. But the point is, the origin point was supposed to be Kirk with his family. Bones and Spock. Okay, I'm with that. Then Bones and Spock and the rest of his crew turn on him. Now, I will credit Shatner this, his understanding of the fact that Kirk's strength has always dri- driven from his crew. He understood that. So him losing his crew makes l- takes away basically everything that makes Kirk awesome. Okay, wonderful dilemma. I'm with it, except for the fact that the crew turning on him is ludicrous and stupid unless mind control is involved. I'm sorry. It is. Then we get into even stupider territory because Take leaping from that point rather than having Kirk try to struggle and, and and endure. The point was that Kirk would single-handedly win the day. Again, Duck Dodger style, and um, yes, I am referencing a Daffy Duck cartoon, and then uh, and then after the end of it, he would have he would have you know given the the Kirk speak speech and and reunited them and then ended the film reunited with his family. This is actually the purpose. You can see some of the bits and pieces of this framework in the film. The, the bookends and the way that uh, the, they talk with each other. I thought we didn't have family. You know, there's, there's little pieces of it in the, in the beginning and the end of the film. Now, if you're not paying attention, Spock and McCoy do not turn on Kirk. That's because DeForest Kelly and Leonard Nimoy literally flat refused. They just plain said no. They were willing to take a penalty in uh in in their contract if necessary to not do this because they said absolutely not and i agree with them completely in fact especially nimoy remember spock literally owes his life to kirk i mean never mind the many other times kirk went out of his way to torpedo his career for spock just to just to on the chance of saving him and successfully did so this is also well after the fact that Kirk and Spock have a very powerful and established friendship because that was true in the original series. Have you watched Amok Time? One of my favorite elements of Amok Time, forgive me for the divergence, is the fact that Kirk was willing to risk a permanent mark on his career simply to keep Spock's secret a safe because he, he respected Spock so much that he refused to, 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 to share. He refused to violate that trust and that secrecy. That's how powerful those two's friendship and relationship was. How could Spock ever turn on that? How could McCoy, his best friend from when they were both in, in young, turn on him like that? It's inconceivable now to be blunt I would I would actually extend this as well to Uhura Chekhov and Sulu. Remember I mentioned this back in Star Trek Three without hesitation. yes, we're with you, sir. Our careers are screwed. We don't care. we're going to do it anyways. loyalty it. This is why I say this isn't a Star Trek film. Because in addition to the flaws in the can- can- continuity and the flaws in the graphics and the flaws in everything else in the script as well, not, it's not the characters. That's not Kirk. That's not Spock. That's not McCoy. Blah, blah, blah. Now, there are scenes which are good. And I'll discuss those as we go. I'm still at my second note here. I'm just ranting at this point. I apologize. But there are scenes which I do feel are good in this film. where I do feel they're actually acting in character. But... Scenes do not salvage a film. So, Cybok Like I said, televangelist. The framework was such that it was supposed to be... Not brainwashing, not mind control, but... You know... The idea was that you would have one horrible pain. Everyone, everyone in the universe has one horrible pain. And once that pain is lifted... I will follow you till the ends of the Earth, Master. Is effectively, what was being said, uh, and that's um, not how human beings work. I hate to break it to you. Now, I'm sure there are some humans, in fact, or whatever, you know, there's some people who, yeah, that would totally happen. Like the guy he meets right at the beginning, whose name I don't even remember, the Laughing Vulcan's dog. <laughs> um, but I hope somebody gets that joke. But the uh, the idea of Everyone that affecting literally everyone, up to and including McCoy, who only turns his back because of of the of the fact that DeForest again refused to. No, but I'm trying to think of how to how to put this. The way the movie is constructed, it feels like Shatner had his definitive vision and he was talked down from that to the point, and I've read Shatner's own notes on this film, and, and it, he was talked down a lot all over the place to the point where he wanted to, they wanted to make it more ambiguous. Maybe it is mind control, maybe it is brainwashing, and Shatner was like, okay, fine, we'll make it a little more gray. So you could go into this and interpret it as, as you wish. However, it's ironic because if we remove this from Star Trek, as indeed I have done in my mind, since this is no longer a Star Trek film, and since those are no longer the characters from the rest of the franchise, then, in that perspective, all bets are off. We don't know these people well enough to know if they would actually willingly turn, or if they would be brainwashed, or if they would be mind-controlled. We have no perspective on that. Now... (laughs) Ronberry himself has deemed this apocryphal, and to my knowledge, there's only one other, arguably two, other references in all of Star Trek ever to Star Trek V. One is in uh, one is talking about uh, horse riders on Nimbus Three, and the other that was in TNG, and the other is also in TNG, talking about the Laughing Vulcan and his dog, which the writer himself uh, insists was not a reference to Star Trek Five. So. Whether or not you consider Star Trek V a Star Trek thing or not is, of course, up to you. And I'm just giving my opinion and perspective on the matter. But I'm going to mention one other thing. I want you to picture this story arc. I've gotten back to my ship, and oh my god, my friend's dead, but... I'm willing to do anything with, and, and we, we, we are willing to do anything to get him back. And we accomplish this and we succeed, but we find out that as we're returning, Earth is in devastation, so we need to redeem it. It's okay, though, because once we redeem it, we are restored to our ship and all is right with the world. And then we, you know, spend years or months on the ship and going through our arc, and finally we're finally ready for retirement, finally ready to be settled down and put to pasture, and we have to undertake one final mission to save not just the Federation, but indeed the galaxy. Maybe it's just me, but that feels like one cohesive arc, okay? Let me rewind a bit. So, then we give them back our ship, and we go, and all of a sudden the ship is a piece of crap out of absolutely nowhere, but it's okay, because we're going to go rescue some hostages because of Spock's brother, and then we're going to go to the center of the galaxy and find an evil energy being who claims to be a deity, and then we're going to go and do all the other stuff. Nothing in Star Trek V fits the rest of the movies. Structurally, literally or thematically. Let me mention one of those constructive things. Um, I know, I know, I'm a ship geek, but think about this. I mentioned the Yorktown thing, right? Star Trek V adamantly insists that the the, the new, the N- NCC-1701A, the new Enterprise, is a brand new ship, which they somehow threw together in like three months or whatever. Okay, sure, fine. Yeah, that's totally what happened. Um, now, you could argue that a ship that's thrown together in three months would be as broken as this ship, but... Um, what's more likely do you think? That they threw the ship together in 3 months and it's a piece of crap that barely functions and then they mothball it however much later or that it was the Yorktown refurbished, re, you know, and and then shut down along with the other constitutions that were shut down. I mean, which which makes more sense to you? I'm I'm open to debate here. I'm sorry, I'm I'm trying really hard not to enter full rant mode. I really am. I know some of you guys like me ranting, but... I I feel bad for bashing this film as much as I enjoyed it. But I only enjoyed it because I was making fun of it the whole damn way. Like, okay, let's talk about David Warner. I'm going to start going down my notes here, okay? David Warner is one of my favorite actors ever. He plays... I don't even know his name. the, The Federation representative... And is thoroughly wasted on the role. He has uh, three scenes where he actually does something. And in all of those scenes, he does a decent performance, ironically enough. But I just feel so bad for the poor man. He portrays someone who is an embittered, aged cynic in the Federation. Now, <laughs> one thing—I'm sorry—I'm going to diverge back to the not a Star Trek thing really quick. Because we let's look at the facts of Nimbus Three, okay? Twenty years ago, just to this movie, uh, in in lore, the the Klingons, Romulans, and Federations, in their own words, got together the scum of the galaxy to settle this planet in order to promote peace between the three powers. Now I grant you that the Federation and Klingons and even Romulans do some dumb things, but that doesn't strike me as in-character for any of them, especially since it's a waste of time and resources, which I think at the very least the other two... I mean, I could maybe see the Federation wasting time and resources, but the other two powers would at least be like, why? Now, I mention this because all of the inconsistencies inconsistencies in this movie can be explained away. The novelization of Star Trek V really works hard to explain away the inconsistencies in this movie. Like, really. Like, Cybok comes up with some wonderful trans warp modifications that he can do to the Enterprise to make it reach the center of the galaxy in, in minutes or hours, excuse me. And the Klingon bird of prey, which I'll remind you is a Klingon freaking bird of prey, scans those modifications and puts them on their own engines, which don't work anything like the Enterprise's, Uh, in order to make that thing. And again, that just defies logic. But at least the the book was trying to make some sense of things, right? So you can excuse this stuff away, but I'm not willing to give this movie that much leeway. Because the point I'm trying to make is that in every way, with the characters being different, with the setting not working, one of the ways this film tries to insert humor, because, remember, the studio was interfering. They wanted a lighthearted romp and space. They wanted the comedy piece. So... The way that they did comedy, now this is mostly on Lowry from what I understand, but the way they did comedy was they made everyone incompetent. I already talked about that. And they made everything broken. The ship's broken. Okay, that makes a degree of sense. It is either a refurbished or a brand new ship. The equipment on the ship's broken. Okay, that's a bit worse because that equipment is independent of the ship and therefore is just broken Starfleet equipment. Um, the stuff doesn't even work half... I mean, I, I'm going to stop here, but basically nothing works right. Ever. Except when it's supposed to. And so, everything... What is being portrayed is effectively a bad attempt at a grittier and more realistic version of Star Trek. Now, I say bad because we've seen grittier and more realistic versions of Star Trek. It's called Deep Space Nine, and they did a good job of it over there. It is debatable whether or not the Abrams films have succeeded at a similar perspective. I will get to that eventually. But my point is, it's literally like someone took the like like someone described Star Trek to an an observer who had never heard of it, and that observer said, "I like that, but let's make it a little bit darker, a little bit darkier and edgier." And wasn't that good of a writer, and created Star Trek V. And that's funny because by all accounts, that's basically exactly what Lowry did. <sighs> point is, nothing really fits in Star Trek. The setting doesn't, the characters don't, the technology doesn't, the tech, the, the, the way that the, the freaking everything works. There are exceptions to this. But it doesn't fit at all with any of Star Trek. For example, why is it, do you think, that... You know what? No, no, I'm, I'm done. I'm done. I'm done. I'm done. I'm cutting off the video. No, I, I've, I'm, I'm going to keep going. I'm just going to start running down the list, because I'm just getting tired of talking about this movie. And I feel like I'm reiterating my point, so I, I apologize for my rambling. Let's just let's just start going down the list. So first of all, um, a nice point about the medals on cord. I like that. This is actually arguably one of the first perspectives on Klingon politics uh, that we get, other than the stuff that was on TNG. It was inspired by some of the stuff on TNG. Oh, I'm sorry, I forgot to mention that. I, I'm sorry, no, no, this is actually important. i got to talk about this. I mentioned that there were a lot of things going against this film. There's one point I haven't mentioned yet, and that's that TNG was bombing. TNG, at this point, was working on and going through its second season when this film came out. If you've watched TNG, you know that the first two seasons are not generally considered all that great. I'll, I have actually kind of an unusual opinion on that, and I'm not going to share that here, because I want you to watch my TNG series when I get to it. But I will say this. There is no denying the fact that TNG was not a success. And there's no denying that Star Trek V was a critical and financial failure. For those of you not aware, the budget for this film was huge. Like, very huge, especially for the time. And it did not do well in the box office. So, this is why so many people said that they were afraid that Star Trek V would kill Star Trek. Because TNG was already doing badly. So the only television series that was out of Star Trek was doing bad. And the only film they produced did worse. And there was a lot of fear that it would have happened. And in all in total frankness, if not for the fact that TNG found its legs with its third season by completely redoing everything underneath the hood, which I'll talk about when I get there, and the fact that the 25th anniversary was around the corner, it is very likely Star Trek would have died after Star Trek V. But I mentioned the TNG thing especially. Because if you're paying attention, a Star Trek show not doing well and a Star Trek movie doing badly is the exact set of circumstances that eventually did kill Star Trek. Remember? Enterprise was out and not testing or performing very well. And Nemesis came out. And Nemesis was terrible and bombed. Arguably the worst selling Star Trek movie of all time. I, I don't know if that's true, I'll have to look at the figures, but it is often critically considered the worst Star Trek film of all time. Again, there's no... I'm just saying that based on people I've talked to. I, I cannot speak for everyone, of course. Um, there's one other key factor here. And that is that there are several executive producers and people at Paramount who I will look up their names from when I do the Star Trek Six rumination that basically helped to salvage Star Trek as a franchise. Because, again, TNG had found its legs, which was good, but there was still some serious threat about the fact that the film franchise was never going to be recontinued. And Star Trek VI almost wasn't made, because the budget they were given was minuscule. So minuscule that it was arguable if they could make a film at all with it. And so Shatner was genuinely afraid that he had actually helped kill off the film franchise. And then several executive producers at Paramount who knew Bennett and who knew Meyer and who knew a few people involved and were like, okay, we'll give you the same budget Star Trek V had, which was a big one, remember? And then we got Star Trek VI. And because of that, we got Star—you know all the TNG movies and arguably the Abrams movies. Whether that's good or bad is up to you, of course. But at the very least, we got Star Trek VI out of it. I mean, come on, right? Anyways, I mentioned the TNG connection because that's very important. Um, because while I probably am more kindly disposed towards TNG Season 1 and 2 than most people I know. There's no denying that it simply was not doing well. It's the Voyager effect. It may not be bad. I mean, some of it's bad. But it's overall, it may not be bad, but it is certainly not good. Thank you, Season 3, for salvaging that. But anyways, okay, getting back to my point. Down the list. So all of Star- everything in Starfleet is broken, because of course it is. Um, so... <laughs> this you might think, okay, in every time, uh, in Star Trek 2 and in Star Trek 3, they try to balance the scales to make it so the Enterprise, which is a big, powerful ship with a great crew and a great captain, can um, be contested by a little, you know, what is effectively a scout ship, the Miranda class, and the Bird of Prey in, in 2 and 3, respectively. So they decided to balance the scales here because they wanted the Bird of Prey back for 5. Klingons, because the Klingons are the sworn enemies of Kirk. Okay, I'm with that. So um the way they balance this out is they give him a broken ship in which case the turbo lift and the doors and half the things of the ship are literally not functioning properly and they give him a skeleton crew because he's the only ship in range right no um because they need Kirk okay why not give him another ship well because he's the only ship in range what yes it came up again. <laughs> But the funny thing is, they do this to balance the, the odds between the Enterprise and the bird. And yet, here's the funny part. The Enterprise being miraculously stops being broken the moment they hit Nimbus 3. You notice that? It's a constant thing. Everything is breaking everywhere. The little panels, the audio clips, the doors not opening. Everything's broken. Then they get to Nimbus 3, and everything works perfectly from that point on. Except for the transporter. That, that's like the only exception. The transporter is the only thing that, that breaks after that point. And even that worked. It just worked and then they were shot by a torpedo. Make sense? So, the reason this irritates me is they do all this crap, which is nonsensical and stupid. But they do it to balance the scales between them and the bird. But then when they fight the bird twice... Both times the crew being non existent and the ship being broken don't come into a p pl- don't come into play. The first time the reason that they have difficulties with the bird is because Cybok's an idiot, and the second time the reason they have problems with the bird is because the entire crew are idiots. That's how they balance the scales. So they set this situation up to balance it and then they throw it out the window. Let's talk about Cybok being an idiot. I know that's further down on my page, but screw you, I'm gonna talk about it now. Why is Cybok an idiot? Now, I actually have a decent amount of respect for the actor. He does a good job, in all honesty, of his role of Sybok. There's a great scene where he's uh, talking to Kirk, and Kirk, he's like, I've seen it in my visions. And Kirk says, you are mad. And you could see on his face his doubt for just a second as he's like, am I? We will find out. In other words, while he certainly has, it's a wonderful subtlety that I owe entirely to the actor and no one else, because it, it portrays the idea that he isn't sure He isn't 100% sure of himself, but he has to know. And I like that, so that's good. So anyways, but that being said, Cybok is a moron. (laughs) They're on a shuttlecraft. There's the Enterprise. There's a bird of prey in the area. Okay. We need to get the shuttlecraft to the Enterprise. Cybok says, no, we will not turn around and get safe. Why? Is he on a timetable? No, he's not. Is he... Um... Ignorant of the situation? No. The Klingon general and Spock and Kirk all inform him that this is a very dangerous situation. If we get up there, it's very likely the bird will try to fire on us or the ship. Okay. So, is it because he's an idiot? Yes! Ding, 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 ding! Why, in God's name, does Cybok insist on going forward when there is literally no reason to do so and he has every reason not to? Well, the reason's obvious. It's so they can have a tense scene in which they artificially try to make the single bird of prey firing on the Enterprise actually dangerous as opposed to being a joke, which it actually is. And then, of course, the Klingon says, he's good because he's referring to Kirk because Kirk's amazing, don't you know that? One of the things I like about this movie, I don't actually owe to the movie. It's the fact that Kirk gives his thing about how he always knew he'd die alone. I like it because it speaks to his trust in his crew. Uh, Good acknowledgement of that. But it also speaks to something that came up in the book of Generations. I know that's a weird thing, but it's true. If you've ever read the novel... uh, There are several movies that I'm going to recommend the novelizations of. Not this one, by the way, and not six. But definitely Generations uh, and First Contact and Insurrection, and Nemesis. They're all better books than the movies, in my opinion, uh, with the exception of First Contact. The point is, though, it came up in the book of Generations a lot. I always knew I'd die alone. And it's a, a major part of his character, because when he goes down to the engineering, there's a part of him that's, you know, okay, I've got this, and he's walking away, the danger's done, and then he's spiraling out into space, and he realizes, as he's doing that, that he is alone. And so for the first time, he feels like he will actually die. You know, spoiler alert. But, <laughs> It's in the first ten minutes of the film. What do you want, me? Anyways, I just thought that was a nice touch. Uh, Second nice touch, McCoy's talks about how life is too precious to risk on things. It's perfectly understandable why McCoy would have that perspective, not just as a doctor, but given what happened to his father, which is admittedly one of the good scenes in this film, which I'll talk about in a minute. Um, So let's talk about Claw, K-L-A-A, who is the total opposite of Krug. Remember I talked about how Krug, despite being kind of... Almost cartoonishly evil, nevertheless, had cunning and, and a decent head on his shoulders, and was using his brain and was doing things that made sense in the, term, in the thematic sense of loyalty and in the overall perspective of the setting. You know, all that made sense. Claw, Claw is a captain of a bird of prey who is bored. He is literally going out fighting targets to gain honor. Not to. for, for himself, by the way specifically his glory and his honor which again is the opposite of what krug was doing so he goes out to fight whatever he sees and he hears about the enterprise and kirk so he's like i'm gonna go fight the enterprise and kirk probably die in the prospect but hey i'm gonna fight them and i will gain great honor if i take down kirk i will gain great honor. honor 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 um do you think the klingon council would let's let's assume on the off chance he actually defeats the enterprise Ha. So let's, do you think the Klingon Council would then reward him for committing a violent act of war against their sworn enemy, who may or may not still have access to the Genesis device, who probably outguns them, uh, especially at this point in time, and who is, in general, uh, more than willing to defend themselves and has shown that in the past... Do you think the Klingon Council, who, again, I remind you at this point in time, is actively trying to make peace with them, would reward them? Now, of course, I'm talking as if this was a Star Trek film, so my mistake. Claw's an idiot because he's a Klingon, and and all Klingons are idiots. I mean, uh, just ask Worf, right? (sighs) Then there's the Uhura fan dance. Okay, Nichelle Nichols is a beautiful woman. Let's just go ahead and be honest about this. And... I don't have any personal attraction to her, but it's un- understandable why people would find her attractive with it, because she is a beautiful woman. She has a great singing voice. She also sung that scene by herself. You wouldn't know it because they dubbed over it, and she was pissed off about that, and rightfully so, because she has a good singing voice. But here's the reason I bring this up. That was suggested sarcastically, and it was they decided, yeah, go ahead and put it in the film. Do I even need to explain why Uhura getting buck naked and doing a fan dance in front of the moon to lure the obviously uh desperate i mean that's so cartoony i know i know it's not star trek it's Star trek but that literally is something out of a bugs bunny cartoon can you imagine these these kind of people dregs of the galaxy who have guns i remind you swarming a woman because she's naked in the desert i'm sorry there's only two perspectives on that one is horrible and i will not talk about it the other is it's a freaking trap you idiots Really? Really? I... And then Cybox the Retard, there's my note about that. I-, I told you I don't have many notes on this one. You ever notice that there's a lack of chemistry between Kirk, McCoy, and Spock in this film? I mention that because there's usually some really great chemistry between that trio, but it's lacking in this one. Spock is stiff, McCoy is cantankerous, Kirk is faking it. Now this is interesting, especially since he's directing it, but he is literally forcing himself to act differently than Kirk normally would. The scene where he's trying to yell at Spock in the in the uh in the brig is probably one of the best examples of that in my opinion, because it is so obviously forced and fake that you could tell even Shatner's own performance just it wasn't there, given that Shatner's the director, at least some of that blame has to be on his shoulders, but also I think. Honestly, the script gets the rest of the blame. Just my opinion on the matter. And then Scott, then Scotty. Okay, so I talked about how Scotty's a competent party member, but uh, or excuse me, member of the crew. I didn't mention one thing. <sighs> Scotty breaks them out. Yes. Scotty's the one who avoids being brainwashed. Yes. Scotty fix the, fixes everything. Yes. Scotty hits his head on the bulkhead. Let me rephrase that. Because if you haven't seen this movie, I want to stress that I'm not kidding. Scotty, Montgomery Scott, walks casually forward into a bulkhead. Doesn't even see it coming. It's it's like this low. Bamf. Hits it hard enough with his casual gait that he is knocked unconscious by it. Oh my god, we really are in a bugs bunny cartoon. <laughs> Oh. so then there's McCoy's scene now in my opinion this is one of the actually good scenes in the film where McCoy talks about what happened with his father and McCoy's father who is, who is in so much pain and desperately begging him to die and McCoy's thought you know I, I'm a doctor but I am his son and McCoy euthanizes his father to save him as a mercy, and then they discover a cure not long after, and they might have saved him, and damn it. And again, this ties into that life is precious thing, and actually kind of fits with McCoy as an overall. It's a shame it's not McCoy though, because this isn't a Star Trek, but whatever. Great scene, it's a shame that it happens just a few minutes after, bonk! It's also an interesting contrast, because again, you can tell that the script is inconsistent when the overall approach is going out of its way to to show you it's not mind control. It's not mind control, it's not mind control. And then it's all of a sudden, like, well, maybe it's brainwashing. And then Kirk, Kirk actually has a speech about how you can't just do what Cybok is doing. How it's impossible to do what Cybok is doing. Even though he just did it. And you showed him. You can tell that a lot of this scene was rewritten. Especially when Spock goes forward and gives his awesome scene. Where he gives this speech... That literally feels like it was written by a different person. It wouldn't surprise me if Nimoy himself wrote his lines for this, because Nimoy can do that. He's, he's he, wrote, he helped write Star Trek 4 and Star Trek 3, for that matter. So it wouldn't surprise me if Spock's lines were written by him. And then, and then, and then. Then the Enterprise and a Bird of Prey! A Burrell class Bird of Prey, which can't even go Warp 7 under the new uh, Warps system of, of TNG. I know, they, they'd use different Warp charts. It's weird. Just don't, don't go into it. It's a slow ship, and it's a little scout bird, and it goes to the center of the galaxy, keeps up with the Enterprise. It's okay, though, because it's not Star Trek. So the Klingons have magic uh, um, hiding under the, 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 the truck power, so they just got underneath the Enterprise and, and, and tracked it on and, and were dragged to the center of the galaxy. There we go, that's how that worked. And then they breached the center of the galaxy. Now, even if we ignore the rest of Star Trek, which I'm trying to do very hard here, if we just look at this film, they make a point over and over and over, you can't breach the barrier, no one's ever breached the barrier, no probes have ever returned, we have no sensor readings in there, no ship's ever returned from the barrier. Why? No, seriously, why? The Enterprise goes in, and the bird does, by the way, both ships go in, no problem. Both The Enterprise leaves. Both ships leave, for that matter. No problem. Why is it that no one ever returned from the center of the galaxy? They didn't even use special shieldings. They had no damage. There's actually a line in it about how there was no damage to the ship. Ship's fine. Might as well just been taking a sauna. Why is it that nobody's ever penetrated it before? Is it because no one ever thought to actually make a reason why no one's coming up with it? Now, I know what you're going to say. Oh, well, The One did it. I'm sorry, I'm going to start referring to him as The One for reasons that will be apparent a bit. So, The One did it. Okay, that makes a degree of sense. Um, except it totally doesn't. Remember, The One didn't do anything to interact with the crew until they were in range. There's several mentions about the fact that he has a range limit. Bring the ship closer. And he doesn't interact with anything until the actual shuttlecraft is already landing and en route. So, he can only reach out so far. So the only reason he was able to influence anything with the Grand Star crew is because they were actively looking for him. How many other research and science vessels and whatnot and probes, probes, have been sent here just to see what's inside, purely for the sake of exploring, and then turned around and left without incident? I was about to play a game with myself to try and come up with some reason within the confines of this weird movie-verse of, of why that is, but I, I got nothing. So, for those of you not aware, uh, it was originally designed that the being in the middle was supposed to be the devil. The devil. Lucifer, whatever you want to call him. I'll just let that fact sit there for a bit um so then they replace voice acting of him with Yosemite Sam. I'm not kidding rewatch it sometime okay, see what happened is they had like I said they had there was there was a mess making this film, and the effects were some of the things that were a mess, and the whole rock blob and the Rock men thing didn't work, and I've seen them and it it yeah it looks terrible it looks worse than some of the stuff in the original series. it's bad um and so. They decided to eject that and do this floating hologram thing of the head. Okay, that's fine. Um, Obviously, they couldn't do that per se because the recording had already been done. For those of you who don't know, filming is done, like, here, and then there's a lot of editing done and post, and then there's a huge chunk of more editing and post after that to add effects on it. So they're in this final phase of the movie, and they're like, crap, we can't use this, but we need footage to fill out these scenes. So they couldn't bring the guy back in. I mean, they could have, but, you know, there were issues with that. So they decided to go and use the footage of him they already had. Okay, that's inventive. And Yosemite Sam. I am dead serious. Listen to it sometime. That, that whole thing he does? Yeah. Um, whatever. I, I, don't, I only have two notes left in my note. I'm not even sure I want to talk about them. But one of the things is Cybok says, you know, this is my arrogance and my vanity. It's the closest thing to a degree of characterization we really get for Cybok. The idea that this was a man who was brilliant. We, we we haven't mentioned that he is as smart as, if not smarter than Spock. <sighs> And he was so brilliant that, unlike Spock, he let it go to his head. He let himself get prideful and arrogant. He believed in what he believed in, if you follow. He, he was adamant that he was right. And, and it's very em- heavily emphasized that this whole Shakaari deity thing was just something that Cybok himself basically concocted, when in fact all he was doing was reaching out towards the One. Which brings me to my final note, the One. I've recommended several Star Trek books in the past including the novelizations of uh, the TNG movies. But one of those books I recommended was a trilogy, the Q Continuum trilogy. It's good stuff. Um, not the most interesting stuff, not the best stuff. It's just in- inter- inter- interesting, the way it ties a lot of things in Star Trek together, as a lot of novelizations do. But the in- one of the individuals that was, a, uh, was fighting in the Q War was a creature called The One who uh, is is reportedly someone who invented monotheism. You shrug, right? The One is the individual who was trapped in the center of the galaxy with limited range and inability to do certain things other than to talk and to affect things immediately around him. Very, very hampered by the Q as they they defeated him. Uh, It took several Q, actually, to bring down the One because he was that powerful in his original form. I mention this because I liked that book and the layers it added to it even though it still doesn't actually make sense because of everything I've already talked about. But I still recommend you read that book. And I guess that's all I have. Star Trek V, The Final Frontier. <sighs> At least I get to watch one of my favorite movies of all time next. For those of you who don't know, Star Trek VI is my favorite Star Trek movie. And, again, um, one of my favorite movies of all time. It's up there with, you know, the original Star Wars trilogy, the Lord of the Rings trilogy, several other works that that are that high on the list. So, yay! Um, Hopefully I'll get that done today. I've gotten a lot done today. I've enjoyed sharing this with you. I do beg your indulgence for the fact that this video was probably not that great. Not much I can do about it. I do apologize. Have a good one, guys.